Deezer Originals Trailblazers Trevor Horn Hello, my name's Eddie Temple-Morris and welcome to another episode of Trailblazers, the podcast that goes deep into the lives of dance music's most impressive impresarios. In these strange times of isolation and separation, it falls to me to introduce each episode of the new season and this episode sees Nick and I talk to Trevor Horn, a man who's helped shape one of the most influential decades in music. This was recorded in February 2019, so please bear that in mind as we dive into the life of one of electronic music's pop pioneers. Trailblazers. How many times have you said, that sounds so 80s? What you actually mean when you say that is, that sounds like this man made it. His video killed the radio star. He formed the art of noise. He produced the only Yes song I played on Virgin Radio nearly 40 years later. And Frankie Goes to Hollywood, ABC, Malcolm McLaren, Seal and countless others wouldn't have sounded the way they did without him. Pop star, producer, studio owner, record label boss, singer and proof that the record business is really run by ex-bass players. The 80s did not belong to JR, the mullet, or shoulder pads. The 80s belonged to this man, Trevor Horn. Welcome <laughs> to Trailblazers. Wow. <laughs> I feel like a bit of a letdown. Oh, oh, absolutely not. Uh, yeah, absolutely <laughs> not. No, I, I always like to write a big intro, and uh, yes. it was hard to write because you've done so much. I, I had this bit about mere mortals getting seals to jump through hoops with the aid of a bucket of herring, and you got, your, you got yours a Grammy without a herring in sight. Because yeah. I had to edit it, I had to take it out. <laughs> We might, and we might have to take that out as well, Eddie, actually, to be honest. So, end up on the cutting room floor. So, so much for the intro. I, I'm, right. It's uh, traditional that Nick uh, will, you know, give you the first question. All right, Trevor. Well, firstly, thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's, an, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Thank <clears> you. Thank you very much for, for giving us your time. Before we look back and re- kind of re- rewind the clock, to, to use an, an Eddie TM oft-used phrase, let's, let's talk about the present. You've got a new record out. It's doing really well congratulations i'm interested to know what you enjoyed most about making the new record i think getting to work with a 65 piece orchestra you know film composers that's nothing that's a small section you know Mm. but for a record producer that's big I, i really enjoyed that aspect of it and also because i didn't have one particular artist I wasn't stuck with any duff songs, if you know what I mean. I, I could do know pick, what you mean. Pick all the songs that I <laughs> that I wanted to do, and and so a couple of times, you know, when we were having problems with the arrangements, the song would still be alive. You know what I mean? Because all the songs were good. Sometimes you, you know, it can be hard to get songs to work. But so there's there's some big stars on on the record. Obviously, Robbie Williams is on there, and Seal. And did, was there much to and fro in the in the the, the song selection between you and and those artists, or do you say, "Hey, I've I've got an idea." There was there was a combination of everything. Some of the songs, you know, I, I'd always had my eye on them. For some reason, I'd always fancied doing "Dancing in the Dark." Ever since I met uh, Bob Clear Mountain, the guy that mixed it, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or I used to call him Clear Bob Mountain. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. what a legend! And I said to him. 
God, I really loved that record, but why did you put that awful snare drum sound on it? <laughs> you actually said that to him? Yeah. Oh, OK. Well, I suppose you could get away with it, well, maybe. he said, Don't know he said the record label made me do it, ah. copying you because of the art of noise. Oh, I see. Yeah, so so it was you, he was saying it was your fault? It was my fault, yeah. Oh, OK. So now there's, there's, there's some, great, some great songs on there. And um, do you have a, a, a desire to sort of do more new work at the at the moment? There's a few people who've said this is, you know, there's some great stuff here, but we want to hear some new songs from Trevor. Oh, who wants to hear new songs? Hmm. I, don't I don't know. know. I mean, a new song. Me? Well, <laughs> I don't mind some new songs, but if I have to listen to too many, yeah. I just like good ones. The problem is I don't hear many. I mean, I hear good records, but I don't hear many good songs. Yes. And it's interesting, you know, going back and looking at the 80s, trying to find songs that had lyrics mm. that would stand up or that were interesting and weren't written by, you know, a team of songwriters or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I'm a little bit against new songs. Right. They've got to be really new. Most things that pass for new songs, especially when you're my age, have a tendency to sound like some kind of a hamburger of two or three old ones that you remember. Yes. Sometimes they're so well done that you get over that aspect of it's it. A, it's a well-done hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hamburger, yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you mean, and, and of course you're right, that there's only so many mm. notes, there's only so many chords, and hence, yeah... It, people who've been in the game a while will go actually come on that's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of the other again though you know if it is if it's good or if it's great i think that's probably fundamentally the most important thing isn't it yeah in a way it's the art of, you know if you get interested in the artist then that helps you get into the songs i suppose do you know one of the problems now is there are a lot of the pop songs are professionally written yeah and and that's okay but yeah. it isn't the same thing Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, without getting on a soapbox. All right. Well, do, you think, do you think it's sort of two painting by numbers in that way? Well, I'm pretty sure Human League wrote Don't You Want Me Baby, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, they were like university kids, you know? No one had taught them. They hadn't spent their lives trying to write something like, you know, when they wrote that, it wasn't a song that was something like something else. Yeah. What you get a lot now are songs that sort of like other things because that's what professional writers do. They write songs that sound like hit records that have been. Yeah, mm. rather than let's make, let's take yeah. a bold step into the future and write yeah. a record that no, rather, doesn't well, really sound like well, anything. they're trying to earn a living. Yeah, it's And they're trying to convince <laughs> yeah. people to record their songs. Yes. Now, I mean, if you if you try and convince, I mean, if you, it's one of the hardest things to do to get somebody to cover your song. If you've ever met Diane Warren, you know, she practically attacks you to get you to do the song. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's got harder, hasn't it? It's got harder to make money for, out of recorded music and being yeah. a songwriter is tougher now than it was. And so Absolutely. all of this is, is in the mix. So mm-hmm. so that's that's all fascinating. But maybe we can scroll back, Eddie. Should we? Should we? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. no not at all. We'll, we'll come back to the new record. We'll, Absolutely. We'll, we'll, we'll now go through your life mm-hmm. in a more chronological way. So if right. I can ask you to mm-hmm. just sort of rewind your mind right mm-hmm. back to the start, you know, before you were a musician when you were a kid or whatever. <laughs> Trevor's shaking his head here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, what was the tune or the artist or the music that mm-hmm. uh, that that you were first aware of? And where did it did it come from your parents or from a sibling or from the radio? Or where, where were you first um, exposed? Now we had a record player who played 78s. And there was one I really liked by, I think it was either... It was either Audie Murphy or Gene Autry, one of the two, and it was called Heading for the Last Roundup. 
I'm heading for the last roundup. On the saddle, pain for the last time. It's it's one of those cowboy dying songs. Mm. Yeah. I didn't realize that when I was four. And I remember really, really liking that. And every time I heard it, it made me want to run around the sofa. Wow. <laughs> and, oh, oh, so Audie, even now, you never hear something good, I want to run around the sofa. Woody <laughs> Murphy was an actor, wasn't he? Not yes. a singer. Yeah, well, he, he was, was a, a. Yeah, but haven't you seen the ballad of Lester Scru- Buster Scruggs? Yeah, that's right, yes. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a singing cowboy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was just singing cowboys. Dave, the trigger, Roy Rogers used to sing. Yeah. Isn't yeah, yeah. Like, uh, Will Rogers? Yeah. So that was the first thing I really liked and my dad was double played double bass player double bass in the local dance band you know five nights a week and so I was away and sometimes he played double bass along with the radio and uh, and I sort of bashed things with spoons cardboard boxes that or whatever was stuff, kicking yeah. around but yeah this one was Gene Autry yeah. so it wasn't yeah it wasn't Audie Murphy right Gene Autry yeah well should uh, I have a, should I have a listen to it yeah, I mean, well, and and you just loved it because I guess all like kids just love cowboys, don't they? <laughs> I think I loved it because it was the only record we had. And she got a lot of spins. <laughs> got a lot of okay, spins. well let's well let's let's you know let's remind you of that. Trailblazers. I'm heading for the last round Gonna saddle old paint for the last time and ride. So long, old So Gene Autry heading for the last roundup, and you were you were four years old, but of course you are Trevor Horn, the producer, and and you're, you're looking back on that now, going, what a great guitar sound. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing you didn't think that back then, or maybe you did. No, I didn't. I didn't think things like that. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you were just having an emotional response to it. Yeah. So, okay, so that was your first exposure. Right. And then, so where, so where were you? I mean, what was your, um, where were you at this time? What was I, your childhood like? I was born in a place called um, Stonebridge, which is just outside of Durham City in the northeast of England. My, um, we lived in a, a really nice house, actually, when I look back, because it's still there. Uh, we lived right next to a dairy, milk marketing board dairy. My father was the mate, you know, my father had to look after the dairy. I guess he was the head, whatever they called him, chief, chief engineer. If something went wrong at three o'clock in the morning, he had to be on site. And he was also playing in a, in a dance band. So, uh, you know, one side of my family were school teachers, my father's side, and my mother's side were all miners. My grandfather on my mother's side is, Ch- is called Charlie Lampton, and he was a coal cutter. So I've got a, uh, you know, quite interesting sort of, my father's family never sp- really spoke to him again after he married my mother. But my mother, you know, he was 32 when they got married, and she was 20, and she was pretty hot, you know? <laughs> so right. I don't blame him. Um, yeah. So all the time when I was growing up, my father was playing. He was out most nights playing. By the time we get to my second piece of music, I'm probably 14 years old. 
and I'm playing double bass in the youth orchestra. In fact, I'm playing double bass in the senior youth orchestra, even though I'm only 14, because I am the only double bass player in the county of Durham. It doesn't say much about my double bass playing. What attracted you to the bass? My father played bass. Oh, OK, yeah. so it was like father, like in son. The blood. Well, right. my father played bass, and he had a double bass kicking round, and he showed me a couple of things, and, and I was good on the recorder. I could play the recorder and I could read for the recorder. So I worked it worked all the double bass out myself. And then, of course, there were girls in the uh, youth orchestra. Mm. That was a big, big uh, yeah. attraction. Yeah. Motivation, yeah. Of course. And we used to go away for the weekend and we'd learn a piece of music like you know, Tchaikovsky's First Symphony. And I remember listening to uh, Walk On By. I had a thing for one of the bassoon players. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to talk about wheel turning full circle. You, you started out as a bass player, and I, I, I looked, I looked you up today before I, I, I was, I was having a look at some, you know, just having a little nose around, and it says if you just Google your name, it comes up as bass player. Yeah. Which is hilarious, like because you because it doesn't say production legend or all of the things that it could say. It says bass player. Wow. You, I think we need to have a word with the Google. Or are you all right with that? Well, um, that's what I that's what I was doing then. But I was also um, playing guitar. You know, when I was fifteen, I did a Bob Dylan act, where you know he say any Bob Dylan song and I could sing it. And I used to know all of them, and I could probably sing you most of the verses of Desolation Row or any of them now. You know. And, and at that point, you're 14, 15, did you know that, that music was a, yeah, a career for you? Well, a, I didn't, a path that you, you, you really yeah. wanted to take, or had that penny not quite dropped? Well, my father used to say, you don't want to be a professional musician, it's a terrible life. Yeah. You want to get a proper job and just do it for fun. Right. And he wanted me to be an accountant, and I was, pre- was pretty good at maths. Mm. Um, but, you know, I saw Bob Dylan on the telly back in 60, 1965. They put him on after the news. Right. You know, literally on the BBC News, news finishes, and the guy says, and now we've got a young singer from America, and Bob Dylan comes on and sings, Times Are Changing, and Mr. Tambourine Man. And when I saw that, I knew for sure, definitely, I'm going. There's a whole magic world out there that isn't up here in the northeast of England. Right. Yeah, yeah okay. wow. <laughs> and, uh, and, and what was it that, that uh, attracted you to, to Walk On By by Dionne Warwick? Well, Walk On By had that kind of um, angst, unrequited love kind of vibe to it, sadness, but done in such a beautiful way that it was possible to enjoy lusting after somebody whilst listening to that record. Mm. Oh, this, yeah. There's nothing like unrequited. Of all the love, unrequited. <laughs> and a bit of, and some strings and yeah, whatever. Exactly. There's a theme that you did, yeah. that you delved into as your, mm-hmm. your career developed. So, cool. Let's, we, let's listen to, uh, let's listen to this. Yeah. Trailblazers. Trevor Horn. If you see me walking down the street and I start to cry each time we meet walk on Very stylish, Dion Warwick, Walk On By, a Burt Bacharach record. He was such a good producer, you know, Burt Bacharach, because if you listen to that record, it's so well done. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of quite in- innovative things in there, that guitar, they go chick, chick, 
Yeah, so that little beat yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was still using double bass then. Yeah, so the record's got double bass. On. Yeah, it's yeah. a lovely record. Amazing records, I think, yeah. that uh, that he produced and put together for sure. So at this point, you knew that music was for you. You did you? Yeah. Did you move away from? No, you, I guess you were still at school, weren't you? In the north, in the northeast, in Durham. So no, what happened to what happened to me in the last year of school? You know, where you normally take your own levels. Yeah. My parents moved down to Leicester because my father figured that the northeast was kind of done. That there were there weren't going to be any jobs there, and I had to stay behind because I was doing my own levels. It was a bit of a mistake because I stayed with my grandmother, and she lived in. Um, a two-up, two-down miners' cottage with an outside toilet on Coalbank Terrace, which was out in the middle of nowhere, right next to Holdenley Spring. And um, my grandmother was sure that I should go down the, the mine, like mm. all, all of my other relatives on her side had, and it wasn't very sort of... <laughs> didn't like the idea that I wanted to, uh, you know, because I'd say, I'm not doing that, Mama. I used to call her Mama. And she used to say, it's good enough for your grandfather, should be good enough for you. But of course, you know... Um, you had I, aspirations beyond... Yeah, and I failed all my L-levels, and that sort of set me on a on a path, you know. Uh-huh. And then I started playing bass for, you know, for to, to earn extra money, because I, I really wanted to be a singer and a guitar player, but I suddenly discovered... I liked the bass and, and I, I could get lots of work on it because I could read the music for it. It was not something that I'd sort of bothered too much about. Um, and then I, I suppose I did what, you know, what they used to call it back in the day, turned pro when I was 18. Right. I had a few day jobs, but I, but unless you've got qualification and listen to this, anybody, believe me, when you go off into the outside world there, if you go out without... If you go out there with no qualifications, it's miserable. Yeah. So um, but, I had no qualifications. But you you were working a lot as a bass player because yeah. some of the, what we do now we we kind of mention uh, online who who our guest is going to be and we invite some questions actually. And there's a guy called Ashley Breeze who grew up in Leicester and he's very he's familiar with this club Bailey's. Now, Bailey's it doesn't yes. really mean anything to me, even though I used to live in Loughborough actually right. as a kid. Uh, and uh, and his question was pertained to this era of your life. So he said, could you ask Trevor what his favourite memory is of, of playing, he, he thought, seven nights a week in Bailey's, if he's correct. I don't know whether that's... He's dead right. I did um, I did about a year and a half playing seven nights a week at Bailey's Club. I actually... Without um, a single night off? No, he never got a night off. Whoa, and uh, I, built, I built a studio at the same time during the day, you know, five days a week. What's my favourite? I can't tell you my favourite memory. Okay. But it stays with me. But I'll tell you my second or third favourite memory. Go for it. Yeah, your, your broadcastable <laughs> favourite. In, uh, in Leicester. Because uh, you were working with other, other artists, were no, you? No, working with other... I was the bass... Look, look. I was the bass player in the house band. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, because it was a cabaret club, you had to back the cabaret. That's what I'm thinking. So you must have had a lot of different people oh, coming in. We and we had loads of we we so over 52 weeks, we'd have 52 different acts, and they they ranged from uh, Neil Sedaka, Gene Pitney, Vince Hill, Tommy Cooper, uh, Dave Allen. You know, just, you know the list is uh, you know goes on and so on. Each week you had to learn a new set. You didn't have to learn it; you should read it. You know, you've read it, of course. It's like you read the newspaper. You yeah. just read the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do it. Uh, just do it. And Bernard Manning. Bernard Manning was my favourite comedian. <laughs> I mean, you know, you see Bernard Manning on telly. God bless him. I mean, I know he's a bit intense. Yeah. <laughs> see him. Li- see him live. His put downs. Uh, I mean, of people are the 
Uh, very funny. He always used to make me laugh anyway. Yeah. And the worst time I had was with Tommy Cooper because um, he he got cross with me. I used to take it. You see, I, I carry a book around. Yes, with me, I noticed that. And and you've yeah, you've got a what is that book that you brought it, with This you is today? just an old. It's an antique book about Sam Spiegel. The uh, right. The, I'm, okay. I'm quite into Hollywood and the Second World War. Okay, but. I'm always reading, so yeah, yeah. so you know, with a comedian, if you're in the house band, you play the comedian on, mm. you know, and then you've got maybe fifteen, twenty minutes until uh, your next musical cue, and it might just be dum ba da 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 dum, whatever. So I'd have a book on my stand, play them on, and sit there reading the book, and that's what I did the first night with Tommy Cooper. But the, after after we finished, he got us all in his dressing room, and he he kind of made us stand in a line, then he walked up and down shouting, "If you." If you were playing Las Vegas, they would tell you you had to laugh at every joke. And when he got to that part, he kind of towered over me, mm. glared at me, and he said to me, you will laugh at every joke. So the rest of the week, wow. He, he, wow. He, he would walk up, do his little whatever it was, the tap on the end of the string. Mm. Yeah. He'd go, tap dancing. Yeah. Look at me. Like, yeah. And what, <laughs> yes, that was became part of your job. Became part of my job for a week. But you were backing other kind of artists who who were having pop hits at the time, I'm yeah, guessing. So yeah. that must have been quite interesting too, to some of those. Well, yeah, we, we, we would get people like Susie Quattro. Right, okay. Mud. Mud were very good live, surprisingly good live. Yeah. I think we even had Sweet one week. Ah, well, they were my first love, actually. Yeah. Bit of Teenage Rampage. Yeah, yeah. or Ball and Blitz. Yeah, yeah, great. I it's mean, it doesn't come... <laughs> don't come cheesy or that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> or, or, or more elevated. Depending. So, but how interesting that you had, you, you had already started collecting gear and you bought, I presume, a tape machine at that time, a, qu- a quarter-inch tape machine. What year was this, by yeah, the way? Well, th- this, this would be somewhere around 1975 because what happened to me in 19... 19- a musician, you know, you'd be playing so many different bands. But anyway, I ended up in London playing with a band called Ray McVeigh and his band of the day. And Ray McVeigh did all big functions. It was the best paying, if you could read, it was the best paying job in town because you got sessions, TVs, radios and live gigs. So, yeah. you know, back then I was earning like 250 quid a week, which was a you know, mm. I saved it up when I bought two Revoxes and a six-channel mixer and a bunch of condenser mics. I thought, I'm going to do a studio. And that's when, after I couldn't bear to be on the coach anymore because with Raymond Vaver on the coach, you know, for, you know, like all day, yeah. five hours there, two one-and-a-half-hour sets playing the cavalcade of crap, and then, <laughs> and then back home again, get home at 3 o'clock in the morning, back up again at 1. You know, it was, yeah. it was hard going. And uh, I, did, I just couldn't take it anymore. So uh, that's why I went to Leicester. And the idea was to build a studio and I had that equipment. Mm. And that's really where I learned about record production because um, Leicester City Football Club were having a good run. And this this uh, entrepreneur guy called Ivan, Ivan Slack, I think his name was, decided he wanted to make a record called This Is The Season For Leicester. And so I put the band together and I organised the song, rewrote it a little bit. And then I got the team in and that was the first time I realised football players cannot sing. No. (laughs) History has proven many, many times. (laughs) Exactly. And and I made this record and and it was... Decca printed 5,000 copies of it. And it was the first time I saw my 
name on a record, you know, and it, it didn't sound bad. And somebody said to me, you know, that's being a record producer, what, you, what, yeah, what you're doing. And I was like, are. this is what I'm going to do. This oh, is what I like. Fantastic. Unfortunately, Leicester got, got knocked out of the cup the following week. Okay. They made up for it fairly recently, though, didn't yes, they, with we, another rather good run? Yeah, they had an amazing run recently. They did. Yeah. They did. So, uh, okay, so you're you're a record producer now, and you're you're in Leicester. Do you... No, I came back to London. As oh, soon, okay. As soon as I realised that, I dumped the studio in Leicester. Came back to London. Oh, okay. With then, your with your two inch tape machine, Revox tape machine. Well, eventually I had to leave them up there for a year, um, be because I was pulling out of a joint venture, you know. Yeah. But I, I knew it was going to go nowhere. And I came back to London, and then I started to, um, I started to do. I put a, put together a band for Tina Charles. Oh, right. I was living with Tina Charles. Right. I was a boyfriend when she had I love to love. Right, right, and then she decides she wanted to play, you know, play live. So I put together a live band. The keyboard player that I found at the auditions was Jeffrey, who was in the bubbles. Yeah. Obviously, and that's really what got me going because a lot of my friends were songwriters and they really liked my band. And so they would say, Can we use your band to, to do our demos? And so I started to do people's demos. And from that moment, it took me five years. Of, um, of recording other artists' demos? Five years demos. Of, of doing pe- demos for people and, and you know, just living from hand to mouth. But and where were you in London at that time? I was living for a lot of it, you know. For a lot of it, I was um, in Clapham. Clapham right. South. Yeah. You know, just by Clapham South tubes. So you probably would have got a lot of bang for your buck in those days. You would have had some, you know, decent, like... You know, if you'd been in Soho, that would have been really expensive. But you were in, uh, you were in a, <laughs> presumably a neighbourhood where you got some decent floor space for your studio. Well, no, I was back. I didn't have a studio then. I, I left a studio in Leicester, and I, I was just renting. If you know, if I got a, if I got a gig working for the publisher, I'd, I'd rent the studio. Oh, you right, know, right. just back. diving in and out wherever. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, our studio up in Leicester, God bless it. It's called Drumbeat Studios for anybody who's. Yeah. And it was, I think, it was on the something road, Loughborough Road, um, but it that we were only a two-track studio. Yeah. Uh, I mean. By the time I was starting to do demos for publishers, I was I was working in eight track studios and sixteen right. track studios. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought I was going to be so good at it. I thought I was going to be absolutely brilliant, and I I wasn't. And I screwed it all up with the start. It took me a few years to get the knack of it. <laughs> but but yeah. that's, there's a, there's an important <laughs> lesson there. For, so five years of of studio graph without yeah. anything really major popping off. Am yeah, I exactly, right? Yeah, okay, nothing. so. You know, it t- it took a little while to, and and then presumably, did you start to get the inklings of of, of wanting to have an artist project yourself? Well, no. What happened was, I I thought, you know, as as the years went by, I thought this is crazy. I'm sorting out other people's songs. I was always amazed that you could get a, this tough song that somebody'd written right and change it all around mm. and make it sound right, and people would kind of act like they'd written it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, I thought that was funny. But, I mean, it suited my purpose because I was being paid to do something. Yeah. So sometimes I would rewrite them more than others. And one day I thought, this is stupid. I should, if I'm fixing other people's songs, why not write a song? So I started to write some lyrics. And, of course, the first song that uh, that we wrote, Bruce and I and Jeff Downs, was covered by Dusty Springfield. Right. So we, we there was a song called Baby Blue. So I started writing songs, and Video Killed the Radio Star was about the third one, you know? About the third song that you'd written? Yeah. All right. Were you at this stage signed 
to publishing by by I wasn't signed to anybody. I was living hand to mouth. Right. I think I can't remember how I. I think I had a, I had a Saturday night gig at the Lancaster Grill that paid twenty six pounds. I remember that. And if I if I had another one as well in the week, that would get me through. Just get me through that week. So so then, but then having uh, written something that sounded like a hit, I presume things then really changed. Did they? I'm guessing you played that record to different labels, or did you? Well, well, what get a manager involved? I, I can tell. I can tell you sort of what happened, and it's it's funny when you look back on it. Um, Bruce and I wrote the song together, and we had a group, and Bruce was the lead singer. Uh, I was a bass player, Jeff was a keyboard player, and we had a drummer. And some big producer who, who was working for Sony came along and saw us and decided to sign Bruce and dump me and Jeffrey and the other guy, which was kind of, at the time, was a bit of a blow. But, you know, they were going to pay Bruce a lot of money, and I never held it. I always understood why he did it. Um, so I said to him, if you're not going to do that song, Video Killed the Radio Star, he said, well, it's not, it's not commercial. And... Uh, or something, and I said, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. So that's when I decided to do it. I, you know, Bruce and I, you know, the idea of calling, me and Jeffrey calling ourselves the Buggles is a whole other story, but it was pretty stupid. If I, I could, if I had thought of a name like Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, now that's a good name. <laughs> it is. <laughs> just, just briefly, how did you end on, on the Buggles? Well, we used to have this, and it's funny you're saying it now, and you've got to realise this was late 1978. But we sort of had this fantasy world that we used to talk about where there was a record company building, uh, but there were no artists signed to the record labels. There were just computer guys in the basement making records for the record label. And they would just make up songs and the video and everything. This is the idea. And one of the bands, one of the sort of fantasy bands, was the Buggles. Uh-huh. Uh, because it was a silly name that was a little bit like the Beatles. Yes. And you could imagine somebody, I've just invented the Buggles, and here's their first hit. It, our initial idea, Jeff, Jeff and I, was, was that we weren't going to show ourselves. Right. But you try doing that. <laughs> it's so, it's impossible. Yeah. Not to get sucked into something, and then once you're sucked into one, you might as well do more. That area of music and the, the sort of themes on that on that record were, were quite ahead of their time, really, because it's you know you talking about technology yeah. and the impact it can have on people's lives. There's a track on that first record called Kid Dynamo. That's about the dangers of of being overexposed to, yeah. to technology. Really, I mean, yeah. it sounds quite. 2019, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and at the time there were there were hardly any videos, and you were prophetically kind of foretelling MTV at a time when only like Queen and people like that were doing videos. Yeah, but I'd seen a brilliant video by that point, and that was only if you ever saw it, it was I Don't Like Mondays. Oh, the yeah, Boomtown the Boomtown Rats. Yeah. yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, videos can actually do something for the record, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, you're right, no. Uh, I didn't know that we were going to be the first video on MTV, you know. Nobody told me. Amazing, amazing. Well, should, let's, let's listen, yeah, to, the, let's listen we... to this uh, incredible piece of pop history, shall we? Trailblazers. Boom. 
your first hit. Yeah. And I guess you weren't now living hand-to-mouth anymore. Life must have changed uh, quite drastically, I'm guessing, in quite a short time. Well, it, you know, if you get a record deal, it changes before that because they give you an advance. Yeah. And they give you a sense, a sense of the sort of size. Um, in the last year before I had a hit, I'd recorded 48 different demos that, that people had paid me to do, and my total profit for the year was two and a half grand. So I made I had like 50 quid a week to live on. Yeah. Whereas my advance when we signed to Ireland was like 15 grand. Right. So suddenly I could buy a car. You know, I mean, it's it's you don't know if the record's going to be a hit, but you know, I mean, when the record hasn't come out, so but you do get the advance. So I'd already sort of come out of that um, hand to mouth thing, but then you know the the, the record would really su- surprise even me and Jeff, you know, because it just went everywhere, sixteen different countries. I think we sold somewhere ten, eleven million singles, and uh, boy. Did that. anybody say this is a number one record in the in the build up to you know when it was getting signed or coming out? Did I you? can tell you who said it was a number one record. Um, Timmy on his tranny. He was the first ever interview we did. Timmy, somebody. Mallet. Timmy Mallet. That was right. Him. Okay. Yeah. Okay. He was he was doing a little station up in Oxford. Right, and he spotted the true well, potential what, of the of the record. What happened was the Ireland put put it on the the cassette of their next month's releases, right, and sent it out. And from that moment, everything went mad. Everything went mad. Within about four days, we were on this Timmy's radio show, and he was talking about right. it like it's a big hit. And I said to him, "It hasn't come out yet." Yeah, yeah. and he said. Don't worry. It's right. a smash. It's a smash. It's going to be number one. Well, he was right. So he's the first person that ever said play. Amazing. <laughs> Brilliant. Amazing. And, and so now at this time, I'm guessing you, this is the time where you rescued Yes, because Yes were about to, where Yes were kind of on the wane, weren't they? It, it, being honest. And and then... Yes, Yes yes is just on their worst album. It's an album called Tomato. Yeah. Which is not, it's, it's not a terrible album, which is not, it, but up to that point, especially after going for the one, which was an absolutely brilliant album, yeah. well, it wasn't so good, you know, and I think they'd lost their way a little bit and they'd all fallen out. I didn't know that they'd fallen out, the only reason I came anywhere near them was because at a certain point, Jeffrey and I needed a manager, and we chose Brian Lane, who was Yes's manager. Mm. And that sort of brought us into the orbit of Yes, and that's how I got to meet Chris Squire. Yeah, and then it just sort of domino. I, I, I think of, because I, I play that record on Virgin, and I sort of tell the story, you know, I, I, you know ever since I started playing it again, and, and my understanding is that they got a new guitar player. They were really on the way, and they were, like, struggling, no, no, and then no. they got, didn't they get a new guitar player who no. brought that song with him, and then you produced it? Yeah, you're getting confused. Between the album that I produced, which was 90125, that I did in 1983, yeah. and when I actually joined the band as a ah. singer in 1980. Ah, and right. that was a drama album. Right. Yeah, that's what the, the, that's the strange thing that Jeff and I did. You've got to realise that, that both Jeff and I were used to playing all the time, and then suddenly you have a hit like, you know, we had a video called The Radio Star. We're going around the world in silver suits. I mean, talk about getting bored. I was bored out of my mind, you know, of miming to Video Killed Radio Star. We used to see how totally out of it we could get. Because, I mean, who gives a damn? You know, when you're miming, all you have to do is flap your mouth and stand there and bust a couple of shapes. Mm. 
and you just get crazy with it. Let's see, see how out of it we can get. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. So we got to that point, and uh, of course, then we bumped into yes, and it felt like a brave decision, though, to for, and and an unusual one for like these guys who have this global smashing act, and now they're going to join another na- another act. Just rather than like, just like, let's make loads more Buggles records. I suppose might have been the thing that somebody somebody else might have done. Yes, I think um, not many people would have done what we did. Um, it was certainly had a sort of foolhardy element to it, because by joining Yes, I was almost immediately punching above my weight completely. I mean, Yes, are all exceptionally good musicians. And I'd been a fan all the way through the 70s because I was a bass player, you know. How could you not be a fan of Chris Squire? Mm. Um, and it was hearing them playing close up that made me join in the end. I thought, well, I'll never get a chance like this again. Mm. And even though lots of people warned me against it, I did it. And it, w- it wasn't all a good experience. I mean, we had our own aeroplane. We did 44 shows across America, three nights at Madison Square Gardens. It was a trip, you know, especially when, when you're replacing somebody who was that good. Yeah. Well, John Anderson. Exactly, yeah. yeah. The guy's brilliant, man. Yeah. He's an amazing voice. I was, you know, I was a bass player, not really. Yeah, singer. could you reach those notes? My God. I couldn't reach some of the notes that John could, but I could reach some, most of them in quite a few of the songs. The problem was, most of them, 44 times in a row across America, it gets to be, you know, I wasn't experienced. Um, well, you'd been, you'd fast-tracked, exactly. hadn't you? You'd, I mean, you'd had, it yeah. seems like you'd had the success with Ruggles, so you knew yeah. what it felt like to be number one, be flying around the yeah. world, but it would have taken a long time for Buggles to get to a point of selling out arenas, right? So of course. it was like a... It was getting fast-tracked to the end yeah. of the big league, it, you know, I wasn't really ready for it. Right. So at the end of it, I, I, I was a little bit... Um, I. I didn't like the, the, the um, you know, if you, sometimes when I was with the S, you look and you've got like 20,000 people and you look at a row of people and suddenly like 400 people leap to their feet and start waving at you. It frightened me a bit. I didn't want that kind of. I didn't want that kind of power, you know. Okay. Not really. Because some people get really addicted to that. Don't no, they? I can see how you how you do. I didn't, but I, it wasn't. You didn't. It, it was somebody else's shoes a little bit. And were you thinking at this time? I, I would fancy being a producer mm. more than being it was my, front and centre. It was my late wife said it to me. You know, she said, um, and when Jeff went off and joined Asia, because Jeff loved it. Uh, mm. She said, um, you should go back to being a producer because that's where you'll be best. You know, you, you might be okay as an artist, but you'll never be Division One. Right. But as a producer, you could be, so I took her advice. Right. Besides, the studio was so much more exciting than live back then. You know, live right. had sort of run its course a bit. Interesting, yeah. And it was starting to become more of a moneymaker. And, you know, I remember having an argument with, with, with the people who provided the PA for the English tour because I didn't think it sounded very good, but it fitted into a lorry well. Yeah. <laughs> so you you thought that where the heat and excitement is is in making records yeah, and being I in the, the studio. studio. So this is an interesting 
curve yeah. to be yeah. playing, selling out arenas in America and mm. private jets and think, actually, there's somewhere else that I, where I need to be spending more time. So, so, um, so well, so tell us then which, which kind, which were the records that started to emerge at, well, at that point a, when you... Well, the first thing, you know, because my partner had left, I said to my late wife, well, this is obviously an opportunity. It means that you can manage me now because you couldn't manage me before because I had a partner. Mm. So the first act she got me was Dollar. Okay. And Dollar was a, you know, um, little pop act that had a few hits. I mean, I was surprised and I said to her, why do you, uh, Dollar? Yeah. And I'm like, I did three nights at Madison Square Gardens, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this Come the on. best you can get? <laughs> Something like that. And she said... She said, look, this is a no-brainer. All you have to do is write a couple of songs, a couple of Buggles songs, and do it. They'll front it, and they'll do a better job of fronting it than you. Right. And so I, I met them, and I said, is this what you want? And they were like, totally. So Bruce and I wrote two songs almost immediately, Mirror, Mirror, and Handheld in Black and White. Yeah. And I did the first one, and it, it, we got a bit of a hit with it, so they they went for a second one. I always remember, though, I, you know, you learn these lessons so hard. Mirror Mirror was the second dollar single, and it ended up selling like half a million in England. Yeah. Uh, but there was one week where it faltered. Like, it, it got to number 42, and then instead of going up, it hung at 42. And it, I remember it was Warner Brothers Records. Mm. And the day after... I was working on the third one, Giving Back My Heart, which was my epic masterpiece. Right. And, uh, and <laughs> the head of A&R from Warners came down just to see how the track was coming. And I realised, looking back on it, to see if they wanted to pay for another record. Yeah. Uh, oh, talk about, oh, ye of little faith. Of <laughs> course, then Mirror Mirror shot off and it was a big hit. It was their dollar's biggest hit. Right. But record, you know, record labels, man, they're so fickle. The whole business is so fickle. It's wonderful. Of course. And were you, were you still um, hiring other people's studios at this time or had you moved your stuff down or had you built your own studio now? No, my late wife's family um, had a studio. Uh-huh. When I first met her, they had a studio, Psalm East, it was called. Right. And, um, yeah, at that point with ABC and uh, and Dollar, I was working a lot in Psalm East, um, which which was on Brick Lane. It's still there, but it's a, they teach. Yeah. Right. Right. But then what happened is, once I started having hits, um, I couldn't get in because everybody was booking it. And, and at <laughs> one point I said to my father-in-law, because, you know, he was the real owner of the studio. I should have some shares in the studio because it's doing so well. And he said, no way, no way. You don't give your best customer shares. <laughs> right. What do you want? We'll give you a gift if that's what you want. But um, but then what happened is, uh, you know, Chris Blackwell offered me Basing Street Studios if I started the label. Uh-huh. But he offered to sell it to me and, my, and we bought it. At what point did you meet up with Martin Fry, I presume, and and, and become part of that? You know, oh, the, Martin the, Fry, and, yeah, and ABC because like Dollar was, I guess your you know your pop entry pop, point, yeah, the entry point as that a, was the as kind a producer. Of a, but well, then ABC was like your first really cool. Well, yeah, well, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. My late wife found ABC. She she said. She said, I'm going to find you a band, the right kind of band for you to do. And then she showed me ABC, and they had the Tears of Not Enough, remember? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, good one. Uh, which, which was sort of, I thought it was okay. She said, 
you should do this band. This is the perfect band for you. And, yeah, I met them. I went to meet them in a place called uh, where Whiteley's is now. There was a rehearsal in, room. Oh, yeah, yeah, in Bayswater. Yeah, Bayswater, yeah. yeah, they were in there. And... Um, I always remember that they had a magazine, a, song, a magazine that had a column in it about songwriting. The magazine was from the 50s, and it showed like a hoagie Carmichael type of character writing a song. Mm. I realised they were into magazines, so was I. I had a, I had a great American wrestling magazine. So I, used to, I like magazines, and wrestling is like a crazy subculture. And, you know, like guys talking about their new flamethrower that they've got attached between their legs and things like that. <laughs> so um, they... I think they liked the fact that I had the magazines as well. And then they they told me, you know, you produce us, you're going to be the, the most fashionable producer in the world. Uh, I didn't realise I was the 14th guy or something. I thought I was the only one that right. they were seeing. As, right. as, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I got the job. And and did you have a similar philosophy, do you think, you and Martin and the ABC guys? I, I actually listened to a little bit of a comment of him talking online about you, and he, when he, he was saying that, that what Trevor instilled in us was a sense of excellence, he said. It's that sense of, uh, you know, chasing perfection. He's like, that's that's what Trevor's all all about. Those were Martin Fry's words. That's very kind of Martin. Yeah. It, well, the, the kind of way it worked with them and me was, you know, when we started, it was Poison Arrow. Yeah. Poison Arrow is a really good song. I remember spending an afternoon with them. And there was one bit in the middle where, you know, because I was saying, you, you need a middle eight. And they said, we've got an idea for a middle eight. Um, maybe maybe with somebody saying goodbye in a station. I was like, wow. Like a voiceover thing. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that, that's a cool idea, man. <laughs> that's kind of normally the idea that I come up with. But you've come up with it. It's even, even better, which means it'll get done. Because you don't have to yes, negotiate it. You don't have to negotiate it. So, so, and that, that's one of the best bits on the record, you know, where she says, I thought you, thought you loved me, but now you say you don't care. And then she mm. says, I care enough to know you can, I can never love you. And there's this huge drum fill, right? Mm. Well, originally that drum fill was a bit weedy. For some reason, I remember Mark having to go at me. You got to do something about that drum fill. And I was like, I will, I will, I will. I promise. And so in the end, <laughs> I got so I got so bugged with him going on at me. I I, I rented a Marshall stack, you know, a complete Marshall stack yeah. with a two one hundred watt amps, and I put a, a set of Sin drums through them with them cranked. Remember yeah. the sound on the record? He goes. Yeah, yeah, it's an epic sound. Meant to be the guy's heart sinking when the girl says that to him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, yeah, we, we we were on the same page. So in the end, we were like a little team. That's you know? lovely, man. And that became Lexicon of Love. Yeah, that's the album. Lexicon yeah, of Love. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. Gosh, I remember. It was a it was a really cool moment on um, Poison Arrow as well. It very rarely happens. I said it needs an intro. We got to find an intro. I said not really an intro. You know, you use those chords at the front, but something before it comes in. And they said, like what? And I just went over to the piano and went, get along. Like, sorry, I hit the microphone. Yeah, I'll do that yeah. again. Get along. Yeah. 
uh, and I got awarded. Uh, I was going to. Uh, they told me that I was going to be in the Pop Hall of Fame for that. I remember that moment. Oh, amazing! Well, yeah, let's uh, let's have a little reminder of uh, <laughs> one of the many reasons why Sheffield is the greatest musical city in the UK. Right on. Trailblazers, Trevor Horn. <laughs> Want to hear more of the music? Don't forget, you can listen to the tracks in full by heading over to Deezer.com, where you'll also find special Trailblazers playlists. Deezer. Deezer. Originals. Trailblazers. So we've played Poison Arrow by ABC, and you went right on when I said Sheffield's greatest musical city in the UK. I've thought about this a lot. I just wanted to, you know, to run the theory past you and see what you think, because it, it I, I, must I, I, be, surely, if you, because we can, between us, we can now think of 15 probably life-changing, 10, 15 life-changing bands from that city. Yeah, it punches way above its weight. Yeah, and then you look at Leeds, which has got a quarter of a million more people, and you'd be hard-pushed to find one, two. Right. Like, you know, you'd be struggling. Yeah, Chris Rea would be Leeds, wouldn't he? Wasn't he Geordie? I, well, Leeds is sort of Geordie-ish. Right. You yeah, see, no, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but you're from Durham. I'm from Durham, yeah. Geordie's in normally Newcastle. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah, Geordie's and then Mackham's and then you come Mackham's, down to Leeds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mackham's Sunderland's between us. I'm going down there, man. But yeah, they do punch that above their weight. And I've right. talked to so many Sheffield people yeah. about this. And, 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 oh, no, no I, I, I'm quite fond of Sheffield. I played the Cavendish Club there once for two weeks. Mm. And that was um, the, the two, you know, I, I was in the house band. Um, they, when I arrived, they just got two sacked two weeks notice, so I only played for two weeks. But the two acts that I saw when I was there that, that were the main acts were the Grumbleweeds, who were brilliant live. <laughs> the Grumbleweeds? I do remember them. I am old enough to remember the Grumbleweeds, yes. <laughs> and the Peddlers. Remember okay. the Peddlers? They were even better. Two great big white Leslie speakers. <laughs> okay. And a lot of naughty stuff goes on in Sheffield. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's maybe totally. why you like it so much, Eddie. <laughs> no, I just, I, I just honestly, it's just it's a, a mathematical thing. Yeah. It, you know, you can, you can just, there are so many bands from, from you mentioned the Human League. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. And, and going through and... and all the way to all, Arctic, all the yeah. way to Arctic Monkey yeah. through ABC and yeah. and Long Pigs and uh, yeah. so many. It's just you could, you could just the go Arctic on and on. Monkeys. Do you know, I heard a version of the Arctic Monkeys doing Diamonds Are Forever the other day. Have you heard it? I haven't heard that song. No, by Arctic. Did you Monkeys. like it? Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, I was really impressed. Yeah. yeah, they've gone they've gone all loungy. They have. And so, it, was it in that kind of was it in that sort of style? Sort of, but but it was still big. Yeah, yeah. it was still had that bigness that they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, so speaking of bigness, I mean, so eighty two. This is nineteen eighty two, isn't it? For ABC, for Dollar, yeah. and so things. What else is starting to happen in in that era? A little bit of Spandau Ballet, maybe somewhere in the mix. Somewhere yeah, no, I, I fixed up one Spandau Ballet track because okay. I liked them. Yeah. Um, Instinction. Right. Oh, that, it okay. was like a remix, an early what you would call a remix. You yeah. Know? yeah. 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 And. Uh, I'm still friends with them all. So, you know, Tony sang on my new yeah, album. that's right, he's on yeah. your new record. And I did a few, few tracks of them, you know, a couple of years back. 
Great bunch of guys. What I what I need to know or discuss is is you talked about Hall of Fame for that intro on ABC, yeah. but surely the Hall of Fame thing would happen for your orchestral stabs that you brought. You know, that it was like the that that stab sound. It, yeah. it, it kind of defined the eighties for me. It was just, it, and it came from you, didn't it? I know mean, you were the first person that I that I, th- I, that I heard that on. Really, I think I was the first person to use it in the pop context. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and then, of course, when I realised how effective it was, I started to do them for real. You know, with the whole orchestra. Yeah, yeah. And where? And how did it? How did it come about? Was it on like an Akai or something? I can tell or? you exactly where it came from. It was one of the original sounds in the very first Fairlight. Oh, you had a. That's right. You had one of the first Fairlights because mm. I used to hang around with the Thompson Twins a lot. Oh, they had that, one too at that time. And they, I remember, they had this thing that they spent an inordinate amount of money on for those yeah. for those days. And it was like in a coffin. I mean, you talk. You know, we have computers. We can make records on laptops now, and and this was like yeah. the size of a coffin. It was big. It, it, I remember it, I think in 1982 it cost £18,000. Yeah. Which is a lot of money. You could buy yeah. a house for £18,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a, a keyboard, white keyboard, and a, bra- a central brain yeah. section. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the manuals were like this. Um, but I managed to get onto the basic page, and one of the sounds that it had was Orkstab. Right. <laughs> I remember hitting it. Whoa! Oh. oh, I like that. Yeah, and use that. And uh, what was the first place that you used that in? Was that on your Yes production, or was it an Art of Noise thing? Uh, maybe? I'm trying to think where where I would have used yeah. that. Because uh, Yes was like '83, I, I think that came out. Yes, was it? Yeah, uh, 80, it would have been '82 because I think I think where I really used the Fairlight in an interesting way for the first time. Um, I think where, where I was really impressed was on Give Me Back My Heart. Oh, right. When I put Teresa Bazaar's voice in it. Like, oh, right. La, right. La, 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 yes. La. Oh, right. Yeah. That's all sampled out, out of a fair light. Yeah. And that worked really, really well. The Orcs tab, I think I used it in a few places on Lexicon of Love album. Right. Mm. I'd have to go back. But, yeah. And then, of, then you know, the Orcs tabs on Owner of Lonely Heart. Yeah, of course. By that point, I was, you know, I'd refined it all a bit. <laughs> you were king of the orcs, Dad. <laughs> king, yeah. king of the whiz bangs. But, but not, only that, not only that, actually, now that we come back to talking about that record, Owner of Lonely Heart, I've got to ask you about the breakbeat in that, because you've got this break, uh, which which I believe is is by Cool Is Back by Funk Inc. Oh, and that's the that bit. thing that's at the very beginning <laughs> and sort of two-thirds of the way oh, right. through that... that bam, 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 that I don't know what the heck that is. I don't know where it's from. I've never. Oh, well, that's a shame. That's a shame because I was going to ask you how you get, how you found it. <laughs> I found it on a cassette that somebody gave me. Right. That Malcolm okay. McLaren gave me. Ah, he was the in the world's famous Supreme Team show. Oh, right. That's how it ended yeah. up on the on yes. Yeah, because uh, Malcolm it. was aware of New York breaking. Yeah. Because because there are people who say that that is 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 one of the first times that a sampled or maybe the first time that a sampled breakbeat ended up on a on a sort of right. uh, you know yeah it was a cas- out- yeah it was just it was a cassette that I had and uh, and it had all kinds of scratching stuff on it yeah yeah I used bits of it on Malcolm's album in between the tracks right and by the by the time we got to that middle part of Owner of Lonely Heart, I took, I remember taking the, the cassette in and 
giving it to JJ and saying, find some stuff on that. We're going to need something. And JJ found that break and then the the uh, the stabs. And then Alan White played them all, you know. He played yeah. because um, it's probably been edited a bit from what it originally was. I, I don't know. I haven't listened to it. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't know where the original came from. All right. What's it? Um, it's Cool Is Back by Funk Inc., which was, a, 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 I think, a cover version of a Cool and the Gang record. Cool Is Back, Funk yeah, Inc. Yeah, yeah. So it was just a, a thing on a tape that Malcolm had given you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> amazing. On the record. And yeah. I was surprised that it's used at the very beginning of the Yes record as well. That's unusual, the, the, the fact that you chose to... Well, I Because that record doesn't start with... Dun. No, it starts with that first. The reason I put that there is to give the guitars when they come into context. It's like big space, little spaceship, big spaceship kind of thing, you know? Yes. So, right. so the sound quality is really rubbish of that loop. Yeah, it's it sounds telephonized. Like, so when the guitars come in, they come and hit you a bit hard. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And then, and then at the end of the intro, everything, you know, everything gets buttoned out and you've got the drums right in your face. Yeah. That was... That gag was on Trevor's demo. I thought it was a great gag, so I was made sure I kept it on the record. So it's, yeah, no, an, ama- an amazing record. So, were you still at Sam East at this point, or had you? No, we got you... Sam, by this point we'd done a deal with Chris Blackland. We had Sam West, but we'd just borrowed a million pounds from the bank, and we were just doing it up. Right, and this so this is in the church in West in London. The church in West London. Yeah, yeah, what a lovely place to to put a studio. Well, it was already a studio. Chris Blackwell put a studio there in 1968. Oh, right. And this is that's where Led Zepp did Stairway to Heaven and the Traffic did Low Spark of High Hill Boys. And then we took it over in, I think, 1982. Wow. And we completely renovated it and sort of started again. And it ran until about four years ago. Now it's nine apartments. Yeah. And an office yeah. Oh, gosh. That's, uh, yes, yeah, I was gutted. I mean, I went there to see Liam Howlett. That, yeah, that, yeah, you know, as of course, as we, yeah, yeah you were in there all the, all the time. Yeah. You were in there all the time, yeah. Yeah, Liam was a very good customer. Yeah, yeah, some great records made there, man. So then you also did the, la- did you do the label deal with Chris Blackwell then at the same time yeah, for that ZTT? Was, that was part of the deal. He said, you know, you start, start a label yeah. and I'll sell you the studios. Okay. So we started the label and the first thing that we did since we, we were going to start a label, I hired Paul Morley to... Uh, to kind of be the, the, you know, to conceive of the label. Mm. I don't know, I just thought it might make it more real to have a journalist. I was very aware of what journalists were capable of. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it much before, you know? Right. Okay. And any reason why it was Paul Morley? Was it, did, did you like the Northern Connection? <laughs> well, get a lot of words uh, out of him. <laughs> Paul, Paul Morley was very uh, rude about the Buggles. Um, and for a while, I wanted to deck him. For us, <laughs> if I see that man, um, but um, he was kind of right in what he said. Although you can be uncharitable and right, it's quite easy. But um, but then when I started to do Dollar, you know, he suddenly uh, Dollar were getting great reviews in the NME. <laughs> was, Did they? No one was more surprised than me. Yeah, I'm surprised to learn that oh, now. Oh yeah, Paul, because Paul was the chief hatchet man. Yeah, for the NME. And um, suddenly he loved Dollar. And and then when I did ABC, he loved ABC. And there was a picture when we shot the video for The Look of Love. Um, ABC asked me to just go and be on the set. I was in the studio doing something at the time. I didn't really want to go. But I went and uh, Paul was there and we got talking. 
And there's one point where a photographer came out and and just as the photographer was taking the picture, Paul tried to kiss me, right? And I pulled my face away because I'm not big on kissing men. Um, <laughs> and that was that picture was in the NME the next week. It was that kind of a life at that moment in time, you know. We were the toast of what was going on. It felt like there was, big, you know... It felt, it felt great. It felt like there was a scene happening. You know? Well, well, there was. And and so, what was the first big record on on your own label? Was it Frankie? Well, uh, well, no, it wasn't Frankie. It was the Art of Noise in New York. It was oh, huge yes. in New York, and that was way before Frankie. Right. Uh, into battle, the first okay. twelve inch. Uh-huh. But then, you know, obviously, Relax. But Relax was a strange record because when it first came out, it got terrible reviews from a lot of the papers and and it didn't do anything for quite a while like yeah. five, five weeks it hovered yeah. around and then it, in one week it actually dropped but you know Malcolm Geary put them on the tube and it went back up and then suddenly it was, it was like it caught fire suddenly it was a classic didn't but, it take I remember it got banned didn't it get banned from radio and that really helped it or no, they said it, that they no. weren't going to play it because it had really sort it of it didn't know, get banned and it was number two uh, and then it was bad, and then it was perfect. Yeah, because then the radio stopped playing it, and then that's when it just went through Kicked the off. roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sales wise, but also what what happened was I was doing twelve inches, and I was uh, having a lot of success in America with twelve inches. You know, twelve inches of the look of love and and some of the Malcolm stuff, and and then even yes, I got yes into the American R and B charts with a remix of Honor of a Lonely Heart. So I was having a lot of success, and uh, and one night uh, when I was in New York, Chris Blackwell took me to took me to Paradise Garage, mm. and I'd never seen anything like that before. I've never been to a club where they played everything so loud. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but 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 what I liked about it, it wasn't you know, I'd, it, it was the quality of the sound system. It was, it was amazing, amazing, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they did that thing. Bomb the bass where you turn the bass flat out and then everybody feels like they got bell bottom trousers on. Yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> they yeah. did a lot of that. And they played a load of my records. I remember they played one of the twelve inches, they they'd looped up the Exorcist vomiting section. It was an extraordinary evening, you know. Wow. Because he was showing pictures as well. Right. But when I came out, you know, it was the New York City Peach Boys. They were the DJs. Okay. I came out, I said to Chris Blackwell, I'm gonna do another twelve inch. After being there, I know exactly what to do. Yeah. And so I did the 12 inch of Relax. That's like the biggest selling 12 inch of all time. The New York mix. Right. After, as, because inspired after, by your night at yeah, Paradise Garage. Yeah, inspired by one night at Paradise Garage, oh, yeah. right. Okay, yeah. I had, I told a... I think there's another episode, isn't there, of, of this where I where I talk about my Paradise Garage experience, and we, so we won't, we won't dig into but it. But you here. went there too. I did, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucky enough to... I was working in uh, New York that uh, summer of, oh, 80s, 80s... Oh, later, eighty-seven, something well, like that. Well, we've got. We must remind ourselves of this incredible record, which was a game changer in so many ways. At that time, yeah, it was. It was tectonic. The effect that that record had. Well, so no. let's let's listen to Frankie goes to Hollywood. Thanks, Trailblazers.
this Frankie record, I, I remember when it first came out, like I was, you know, deep in clubs and stuff like that. And the first version of that that I remember was very different from from the version that was a hit, as I recall. It was very raw. You really, like, did a job on that. You did, you did a number, didn't you? And, no, it was and, totally different to the yeah. To the demo, totally different, very different from the original Frankie demo. The, the one thing, it had the song on it and the four on the floor. Those yeah. were the two main elements. Yeah. And there was, yeah, it just, it, it was really just such a massive deal, wasn't it? And it wasn't just the record, it was everything, everything that came with it. With it, yeah. The t-shirts, it, was, it kind of really, uh, you affected youth culture in such a Frankie massive say, way. Uh, Frankie say I'm the unemployed, that was my favourite. <laughs> Out of interest, was there a bit of pushback, though, from the band that you felt when, when it became this big rolling thing that was kind of almost out of their control I just want or did they go this is great we recognise that that everything about this is larger than life the production the marketing etc and we're flying high and we love it because sometimes artists embrace that and sometimes they don't well some artists would hate that and they wouldn't even let you anywhere near it so you wouldn't be able to do it yeah um it was one of those things, you know, um, it, it, the, Relax, just the record itself, was so much to do with emerging technology as much as anything. Yeah. That technology was really, had only just arrived. Yeah. The way that I could link a Fairlight sample to a, a drum machine. Yeah. In that way, with a piano and a bass guitar, you know, we'd not been able to do that before. And that's how new it was that, you know, the band, if you think about it, the bass part, the bass player could have played it standing on his head. Plonk, yeah. plonk, plonk. Yeah, it's, plonk. Just a thumb, yeah. it's just a thumb, yeah, a, a metronomic yeah, thumb. Yeah, kind of thing, yeah. yeah. And, um, but now the band sort of grew into it. Right. And by the time, yeah. you know, we used to, when we were doing Two Tribes, I remember getting them in and saying, this is, this is, this is you playing Two Tribes in Madison Square Gardens. And we just taken the record and made it sound like they were playing live in Madison Square Gardens. And they loved it. And I was trying to make them sort of dream about, you know, playing places. Yes. By the time, you know, within a, by the end of the year, they were able to, to really play their own stuff well. Because it, it's just working out how to do it that was the main problem yeah. with some of those songs. Sure. Um, the problem they had in the end was between themselves, you know, really. Mm. So often, so often the case. Can we talk a little bit about uh, just rewind to Malcolm McLaren briefly? Yeah. So Buffalo Girls, what was it like working with Malcolm McLaren? Basically, did you ever interview him? Did you ever meet him? Uh, no, no, I never met him. Never interviewed him. No, he was very mischievous, wasn't he? Yeah, he was mischievous. But he was great to work with. It's funny. I, I I found some old photographs from the sessions, and uh, there's there's a couple where where Markham's sitting writing, and Gary and I are holding up signs saying "Silence, genius at work," <laughs> stuff like that. Malcolm was funny. Once you got to know him, he was really funny. And you know what else? He was kind. I mean, I know he's like punk and mischievous, but he was a kind guy. And uh, I felt really bad, actually, because somebody's intercut an interview with me and an interview with him. And I'm saying, Markham's not your normal kind of singer, you know. In fact, he really can't sing. Right. And that wasn't easy to deal with. 
And then the Andy Captain Martin was going, well, I'm a sort of wacky kind of guy. I suppose Trevor Horn found it a bit difficult sometimes because I couldn't sing, you know. Right. Uh, uh, Malcolm's great quality was that he never hung on to anything. If Martin would have an idea, we would charge in trying to do the idea. Yep. And then if something came up along the way... That was better, a left turn, let's go left. He'd, he'd go left. Right. And Buffalo Girls was one of those things because he kept... Battling, rattling on about doing a version of Buffalo Girls. But he had it in his head that we were going to do it like, you know, first Buffalo Girl, go around the outside. And, you know, I was, I just had a few hits. I didn't want to go back to having flops again. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. so I was desperate for some way to try and make Buffalo Girls into something. And it was one of those inspired moments when Markham said, we're going to go and make a scratching record, rapping scratching record called E.T. Come Home. I said, why don't we do Buffalo Girls? And he was like, yeah, okay. Oh, God, thank God for that. I can see a light at the end of the tunnel. I could get it to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so Buffalo Girls existed as a sort of country-esque whatever thing. We'd been down to Nashville and recorded it with a bunch of utility pickers. Yeah. Who couldn't, you know, who the hell Malcolm was. (laughs) Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so Uh, you had that, but you didn't... Yeah, we had that, and he kept talking about putting it out as a single. Just like that? Yeah. Ah. And then it, it was your so he yeah. said he, it was your idea for that to that become was, a record that had scratching on it. It was his idea to do to do, do a, scratching a record, record with scratching. It was going to be yeah. a different record. It was going to be a different yeah. record. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, but right. it was me that suggested let's, let's, let's do, do that Buffalo. on Buffalo Girls. Amazing. Because I was desperate because I didn't think the other version stood a hope in hell. Amazing. That's a brilliant. It's a brilliant record. Do you mind if we give that a quick spin? Yeah, we so yeah, must. We've sure. got to ask. We killer, man. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's listen to that. We must do. Trailblazers. Trevor Horn. Trevor, at this point, you are probably the biggest producer in the world. I mean, you were how it was certainly in the UK. You, your, your life must have been so different at, the, at this point. Yeah, but right? my life was mainly in a recording studio all the time. Yeah, five or six days a week, sometimes seven. If I went out to eat anywhere, I, I would see people look at me and then they disappear from the restaurant and come back with a CD or, or a demo <laughs> tape. Yeah. I got so many demo tapes, you know. Yeah, so life did change quite a bit, you know. I also started having, you know, my had children, so right, life right. changes a lot from that too. Yeah. And hit after hit. You know, For the and, better, of course. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And ZTT, Zang Tum Tum. What, yeah, yeah. What? Because um, I remember that setting up. Why? Why? <laughs> what was the? What well, was the uh, well, very genesis simple, of that? Simple reason that uh, that making records for other people. I don't own the record, and I'm on a very small part of it. And sometimes people don't account to you properly. So I thought I want to own my own records. So if I start a record label, I'll own the records. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've owned ZTT for a long time. I sold it last year. Actually, calling it ZTT, whose whose idea was Paul Morley. That was Paul, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. futurist. That's his. Yeah, I thought it was a great name, though. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree. So, more great records around this time. Grace Jones. Can we move on to Grace Jones? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's there's, there's Grace so many, Jones. There's, there's Seal. Who do you want to talk about next? I'd like, I mean... to, I'd like to do Grace Jones and then Seal. Okay, if that's possible. 
Yeah, Grace was one of those things that she she came up because Chris Blackwell again said he had a greatest hits album coming out. Would I like to do a track for it with Grace Jones? And I loved, uh, you know, I loved Warm Leatherette and My Jamaican Guy, I love Young Rose. And so I was intrigued. And Bruce had this song called Slow to the Rhythm that we tried with the Frankies, uh, but it hadn't worked. I was intrigued to learn that. I didn't know that until a couple of days ago that Slave to the Rhythm was potentially going to be right. a Frankie Goes to Hollywood record. Well, it was only a suggestion. Oh, the well. thing is, after Relax, you know, started to be such a big hit, we had to figure out a follow-up. And believe me, the original version of Two Tribes didn't sound like a, a follow-up hit. And so we tried we tried Slave to Rhythm. And, and so, so uh, Grace came and sang it, but... Um, and it was okay, but I didn't like it very much because it was too thought was too straight. I thought I can't have a track like that after my Jamaican guy. It was too bombastic. Yeah, because it was like the the very sort of very German version of the song. Right. So I got Bruce to rewrite the song, put it over a go-go beat. Yeah, and which was massive the, at the time. Trouble the record, Funk yeah. and all those guys, I suppose. But Bruce did such a great job of you know rewriting it. I mean, the chords he came up with are beautiful, and Grace Grace is um, Grace is great fun. You know, she was. Um, I was waiting for her in New York for three days in the studio, but I just kept making the record while I was waiting for her. What I didn't know till I read her book was that she was only two blocks away. All oh, right, so you could have like, given her a knock, sort of thing. I Come could on. have practically walked around and knocked on her door. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, and she was a bit surprised when she saw because the original version was so fast and bombastic. Yeah. When we played the other version, she was sort of bemused a bit at first, but but she got the drift of it and it worked really, really well. Um, it, it was trying to trying to get a climax in the song. I always remember. I said um, I saw her on Johnny Carson. Mm. You know. Mm. And the next day I said, I've figured out, Grace, I'm going to get big horn section. I'm going to make, make it so it's like you're on Johnny Carson. And all you've got to do is shout, here's Grace. <laughs> Which she did once. But if you listen to it on the record, she overloads on the Grace. Um, and she did it a couple more times without it overloading, but I used the one where she overloads because right. I just liked it. Yeah. Um, and it was meant to sound like... We, we, the song didn't really have a climax, you see. Yeah. Not really, and so that was the sort of climax. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Grace. Yeah. A slave to the rhythm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was more about the groove, wasn't it, rather yeah. than, than being, you know... Yeah, but still, I always like the records to, to, to come at some point, and if they don't, I try and make them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, they've got to have that moment where... where there's a sort of a climax in the record. Yeah, it's an amazing record. Let's listen to it. Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm. Trailblazers. Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm. Like I say, you you own the 80s. There were so many records we can talk about and so many artists that were, that were coming your way, I guess, from so many different ways, management and labels and publishers and and what whatever. But um, there's only so many hours, sorry. Yeah, exactly. So you only so many hours in the day, and unless you... The, well, you must have turned down a lot. Yeah, a few. Um, <laughs> definitely a few. 
uh, because I didn't, go on. I didn't like the idea. <laughs> Who I did, did you turn down? Uh, I don't like to say because oh, I think okay. it's an insult when you say I turn somebody down. Okay, fair it's enough. A bit of, you didn't know, have time. To ask. Well, I don't know. Who didn't you have time to do? Yeah. Let's not. Let's put it in a different frame. I'll tell you the worst one, and I just remember this was one, one of my daughters got in the car one day, and we're driving along, and she said, "Oh, Dad, t- this is a Bon Jovi tape." <laughs> I go, oh yeah what she said what is it I said it was some song he sent me but I couldn't do it well I could have done it but I wasn't sure and she put it on and it was I Will Always Love You or something she said dad this is a huge record it's like number one all over Europe I said, oh, really? Good. Well, good for John. <laughs> she was like, you had the demo of it. And you, uh, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Goes with well, the territory, yeah. man. Come yeah, on. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So at what point did you come across Seal and and work with Seal? Because you went on to get your, your Grammy Award with him later. When it was 91. My late wife said, I'm looking for, I'm going to start looking for the new Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole was Jill's favourite singer and uh, then one day she came in she said I found him I found the new Nat King Cole he's called Seal and I was like Seal you know (laughs) (laughs) an odd name yeah an odd name and she played me a a demo of Crazy and uh, all I remember was that Seal had put his voice through a phaser phaser. Mm. and I said to her I can't tell if he can sing from that his voice is through a phaser uh, and she was cross with me. So she said, I'm going to send him in to meet you. Right? <laughs> and I'd seen him across the room, and Seal was a very imposing figure back then. He was wearing leather trousers, yeah. he had dreads with beads in them. He was six foot five, but he had like Cuban heeled shoes on, so he was closer to six foot eight. <laughs> I looked at him across the room, and I thought, will we actually have anything in common? Mm. You know? Anyway, he came into the studio, Just I was mixing a tune, and I remember the first thing that struck me, I couldn't believe what a nice voice he had when he spoke, you know. Um, I didn't have much experience. You see, what I didn't realise, see, Seal's African. I hadn't really met many Africans, so I didn't know from Africans. I didn't know what Africans were like, you know. Mm, yeah. Or whatever, Seal was African growing up in Kilburn, you know. Yeah. And one of the first things he said to me was... Oh, he said, I like this guy's voice. He's got a great voice. It was actually Terry Reid. I was mixing a Terry Reid track. I always think it's a good sign when artists like other artists. The worst thing is people who don't like anybody. You know, you know that they're good, you know, that they're small. Yeah. Big is good, you know, like mm. open open heart, you know. This mm. guy's got a great voice. Yeah. And and then I didn't see it. And then Seal said, can I, can I play you something? And I've got a cassette with a backing track on. I've just written this song. I thought, well, I thought you might, I can play it to you. So he went downstairs and he put the cassette in. And it was the backing track of the last song on the first album called Violet. And he he just started singing, Ooh, I watch you comb your hair, different light, change your chair and seem to think that's all right. And I went weak at the knees. I got to, you know, like... Give me that voice. I want to make a record now. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I can tell. I can. I can. I know when people can sing, and Seal could tell he got me. You know, and so he started to sing me all kinds of stuff after that. Seal's a great mimic. You know, he can mimic all kinds of people, uh, mm. and some quite surprising people. 
So that's how I met him. And uh, I remember coming back from the meeting and saying to Jill, absolutely, he's brilliant. Yeah. And then, of course, pretty soon after that, he had number one record with The Killer. Yeah. Luckily, we'd spoken to him first and all the other record companies were silly, so we ended up getting him, you know? Mm. And we had a great run because, as it turned out, Seal had uh, had, had a... He, he, he'd been working the rag trade, cutting patterns, and the guy that he cut patterns with um, had given him a musical education, played him loads of records to seal new things like Crosby, Stills and Nash, Joni Mitchell, as well as knowing modern dance stuff. So he had all these reference points that like you know, yeah. African guys would never have had. Yeah. And, you know, and then Seal started staying with me when we were making the record. He'd come and stay with me. And that's when I heard how he did it. Because sometimes he'd get in the toilet and he didn't know I was around. And I could hear him and he'd be going for it, man, in the toilet. <laughs> all over a line, figuring out how he was going to do something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he used to have a lot of fun. Oh, amazing. He well, does have an incredible voice. And amazing. Does. Funnily enough, you say you used to have a lot of fun. I've noticed this. This is it seems to be important to you to when you make in records you really want to enjoy the process don't you and you really want to encourage artists to well you know this it's it can be working in music's a funny thing sometimes you know like like for instance songwriting if you go into a room to write a song i'll guarantee you at some point in time if there's a fly walking up the wall you will be riveted by that fly yeah that fly will be the most interesting thing going on because it can be so hard to think of things sometimes you know yes and records can be like that i've never i try not to take it all too seriously Mm. um that way you know i do take it really really seriously but not not every minute otherwise it's horrible yes. you know micromanaging people and stuff especially in a creative environment is the worst thing you can do a lot of the time you know you've got to try and just put them in a position where it comes out easily you know yeah and hence the humour making people yeah. feel relaxed but yeah. then at the same time this it seems like there's this in, there is an incredible work ethic seal again you know said you know you're yeah. the first man in in the session last man out yeah, and all that stuff and that's probably the other you know the other yeah. side of it it's the work, the hard work ethic and presumably incredible attention to detail in yeah. when you're record making and, and actually we, we didn't talk about this on Frankie but the Frankie records took a long time didn't they yeah so it's hard working with a band isn't it it's much easier working with just one you know when you've got one singer well yes because if you work with just one singer you, then you get to hire the band and if you hire the band they all love you yeah, they love you. Un- well, they do un- what you say. <laughs> unqualified and unquestioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. Well, you don't have to. You don't have to uh, <laughs> negotiate every uh, no. change or every middle eight or whatever. And all the all the people that I hire, um, I, I hire them. But you know, they're all brilliant, and I and I like them. Yeah. So that's good fun. Sometimes you have to deal with people in bands, and and that can be hard. And I have been in a situation where me and the engineer were literally had our arms around the bass player as he was playing, and we were both damping his strings <laughs> by hand in between because God bless him he'd only been playing for a few months and he was just letting all the strings ring you know and you can't do that on a bass yeah I've got, I've got another question for you but why don't we listen to Seal and then yeah. I'll, I'll ask my next question How well, about yeah, which one are we going to listen to up to you Trevor what, what, which... oh Future Love Paradise I always like that one you don't get played enough so I mean, let's stick that on shall we yeah Trailblazers Trevor Horn
ideal future love paradise. I'm glad we got to play a track that doesn't get enough airtime. But I, but ever since you know, I woke up today knowing that I was going to be interviewing you, I had "Kiss from a Rose" in my in my oh, head. Right. It's my favourite hit in in waltz time. It's, <laughs> it, it, you know, because everything, almost everything in the charts is in four four, I know. and it's so lovely having something in in yeah. three four. It's uh, just a delight. I just wanted to talk about the thing that we started to touch on about the amount of time spent making records. Yeah. And, uh, and there was a, a question actually from uh, a guy called Mark Summers, uh, who I know, who, who said, it, it, has, has there ever been a record work that you've spent so long working on it that, that you just can't listen to it again once it comes out because you've been so through the ringer with it that you kind of, you're so sick of it? Mm, there's still a couple of those that I'm scarred from. Uh... <laughs> but um, yeah, I tend not to, you, you know, if I've worked on something, once it's done, I, I tend, when you're a producer, you don't have to listen to it again. There's, there's no obligation. When you're an artist, you're constantly going to have to listen to it. And I've remembered that part of being an artist from, from the past couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, but what often happens is for about a year afterwards, you can't listen to it. And I mean, yeah. I couldn't listen to 90125 for a year or so yeah. after it. But then... You know, you creep up on it and you listen to it, but it's not bad, you know, I can listen to it again. I still, you know, my favourite Seal record is the fourth one for some reason, and I have that in the car, and I often, there's a couple of obscure tracks on the back of it that I really like. You know, it's... Um, I don't know if it's a healthy thing to sit there listening to your own music, you know. Well, I suppose you're on to the next one, aren't yeah. you? So once it's done, the record's fit, delivered, you're deep in something yeah. else. So you don't even have much time to be no. listening to old records that you've made because you've... I you've can't got change them anymore, you know. There's nothing Once that it's can... out there, it's gone. Yeah. So, you know, you better make it strong before it goes out into the world. Yeah. Because it's a tough world out there. Are you one of these sort of tweak? I call them tweaker producers. That you know, you listen to a record afterwards, and you just go, "God, I wish I'd done that." That's that, the EQ on that snare is, just, you know, you, and you get sort of, you know, you you turn yourself inside out listening to to things. I'm not as technical as all that, you know. I mean, I know I know certain things about the frequencies, you know, um, EQ, but I never touch it. You know, got engineers. I mean, if it was up to me, God knows what it would sound like. Uh, <laughs> it is um, up to you. What are you talking about? No, but I mean, if I had to, if I had to sit there and and you know and I'm I'm always interested in the same thing, you know. Is the record exciting me? Yes. I'll, if it isn't, I'll fig if if I'll figure out a way of making it excite me in some mm, way. Yeah, and that's what I do really. That's what it, now the engineer does whatever he has to do to 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 make that happen to me. And, and I can be specific if yeah. I have to be. Yeah, but but most of the time I try not to be. I try not to manipulate it too much because then you can regret it. Um. It's a funny world now, you see. Back in the day, you used to work on a song for ages and then you'd mix it. Now, you're always working in a mix. And so you just kind of finish. Unless, yeah. unless you want to give it to somebody else to completely remix, to start again. But I guarantee if you do that, there'll be 20 things that you would do and that you'd forgotten that you would do and that they don't do and you won't like it. So mm -hmm. There was something that you said, um, just rewinding a little, to when you first met Seal, which I thought was interesting, and you, you said you looked at him and you thought, I, am I going to have anything in common with him? Is that something that, do you, do you need to find something in common with the people that you're working with? 
Yeah, because you're going to spend a long time in a small room with them. Yeah, but then, you know, some people would say opposites attract, might say, you know, that they would get a, a thrill from meeting somebody that, that was from a completely different world and that had different reference points and some, you know, some might feed from that, you know, rather than commonality. Yeah, well, I mean, it didn't stop me from meeting him. But I just remember thinking, will we have anything in common? Mm. If we're going to work on music together, but it was... Um, we both had the same favourite record, Walk On By. <laughs> and he mm. was, we were, funny enough, we were both listening to uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Wooden Ships at the time. That was one of my favourite tracks at the time, it was one of his, uh, which was surprised me, you know. Not surprised me, I, I, I was just pleased. I had no idea what he was going to be like, you know. Yeah, but the other thing about the other thing about seal seals like seals lo loves uh, innuendos, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that. Mm. For now, for now, yeah, and taking up the octave, you know. All right, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. He's very fun, funny, yeah, you know. So. Um, we were talking about like the briefly there the team around you, and you talk about look, you know, you've got maybe somebody else in the room who's an engineer who might understand the specifics of of yeah. certain technical things, and you're kind of more the big picture person. Question from Henrik Nielsen was: When records come to be mastered, how are you? really on top of that process or is it a similar thing yeah you know you're like look there's people that you trust let them well generally by the time you master a record if it doesn't sound good you can't expect the mastering to make it sound that much better no. and quite honestly you know um, <laughs> I don't think mastering means that much these days because what it was good for was was when you had different studios and everyone was recording to analog tape. Yeah. Certain engineers would do it like this. It was a way of, you know, equalization is what it says, making everything equal. Yeah. Um, also, you were dealing with getting a record onto vinyl. Yes. Now, getting getting a tape onto vinyl and having come off the vinyl sounding good, mm. that was hard. Yeah. Be, because the vinyl reduces your record and sort of quantizes it in a way. So the three, you have to be careful that your three important things are loud, you know, and anything in between. And, and it takes a long time to get that knack, you know. If you listen to something like Poison Arrow, by the time I was doing Poison Arrow, I knew how loud to have. Da -da 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 -da. Yep. All those things, they yep. really, you hear them, and you hear them off the seven-inch single. But like I say, that took me years what to, are, what to are figure the, that one out. What are the three important um, things? That... There's, you can only generally ever hear three things at any one time. Right. The lead vocal, yeah. the, the backing track is a lump, Yes. and then whatever is responding in the backing track to the lead vocal. Okay. You won't hear so much. strings, for example, yes. or whatever. You won't hear String much else, not really, you know. Yeah. I mean, not as a casual listener. Yeah, so those um, are the bits. Get so, them. That's, so that's when, and, and in those days, we used to uh, spend all day. Like, we spent all day mastering uh, uh, Lexicon of Love. Yeah. And then when I heard the master, I, I didn't like it. And uh, when I heard it off the vinyl and I went back in and spent another two weeks mixing it and I was even more brutal and ruthless than I was the first time mm. and then we used a different cutting engineer right um, now what we hand over is so close to the finished thing yeah that you're happy to let well you know they plus you know plus one and a half you know half a dB at for 5.8 or something like that and let them get on with it and they do it yeah it's, it sounds pretty much the same you know to me 
It's all done. Yeah, just a little bit more sizzle, maybe, or something. Yeah. But one thing that does make me angry, right, at the moment, and when people start to rattle on about vinyl, I want to strangle them, right? They sent me a, a vinyl of an album that I'd made with um, Billy Idol about three or four years ago. And I put it on. It was so obvious that what they'd done when they mastered it is that they'd played the first track, set the EQ and the compression for the first track, and then just let the album run. Right. And by the time you got to the last track on each side, it was unplayable. It wouldn't play. It was distorting. You can't do that. You have to do each track individually. So if that's the vinyl that people are listening to now, then God help them. Because that's what I said to the people. Don't send me this shit anymore, mate. <laughs> this is no good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I explained why. Yeah. And... You know, I can hear when they've, uh, you know, they, and they, they, get, they, you know, they do always did the same thing. They put these these equalizers on that pull the stereo in, yeah, and they make the whole thing much more conservative, and, yeah, and then they let it run, and it it's horrible. Mm. And that was that that was a remaster that you're no, about. it was, was a Billy a... Idol album that I did three or four years ago. You probably ah. never heard it. Ah. It was to coincide with this book. Ah, yes. And they sent me the vinyl to approve. Uh, but I wouldn't approve it, but it still went out. Gotcha, gotcha. As we start to, to come towards the conclusion of this uh, f- yep. fascinating conversation, I've got a couple of other questions in, and then yep. I'm going to just squeeze a couple of bits. A big one, I think almost anybody would want to ask you this, Trevor. Uh, which artist do you wish you had worked with? You probably must have been asked that many times. And which artist would you still like to work with? Uh, who's out there at the moment? I wouldn't have minded producing Bob Dylan. That would have been a laugh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've I spoken to a few other producers who've worked with him, and uh, I don't think it would be easy, but it would have been just something to try one time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I like that thing, you know. I had to do a version of Desolation Row for a friend of mine. This friend of mine wrote a lyric called Desolation Euro. Right. All, you know, 11 minutes of this lyric. Okay. And so we recorded a version of Desolation Row for him at the end of a session. Right. I know the song so well, we did it in one take. And it made me think of what it must have been like with me singing, you know, they're selling postcards of the hanging. I know every verse of it. Mm. Um, and, I, and I thought, God, this must have been fun. Yeah. Working with Bob Dylan, he's just playing these great long tunes and you can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'd, I'd like to have done that. Anybody still around to work with? Uh, anybody who's got really good songs. Okay, keep it open. Yeah. Good, that's that's a good answer. And in terms of people with really good songs, new artists, uh, you know, potentially sort of coming through, I just wondered what your thought was on, you know, you've studied the industry, you've had this incredible overview of, of and, and participation in, in success. When young artists ask you, how do I how do I get my music heard yeah. these days and what do I do to, to break through? I just wonder, we, some, we have some aspiring artists who list to this, listen to this show and look for advice from our guests I wonder what sort of advice you might give them well I always remember an old Denmark Street publisher saying to me the music business is is a sort of perverse business you slog away and it all seems hopeless and then one morning you wake up and you're in business and uh, that's what I would say to anybody starting up Mm. it's a long slog but if Mm. you keep going don't wait around for anybody. Don't ever expect, you know, I, I learned a great lesson when Dusty Springfield covered one of one of our songs because 
I didn't like the production of it. I much preferred the demo that yeah. me and Bruce had done. Yeah. And I, I remember I said to Bruce at the time, nobody's going to do it for us. We're going to have to do it for ourselves. So don't think anybody's going to do it for you. You have to do it for yourself. And you're going to try and just keep learning and keep trying. And if you, work, if you do it for long enough, you'll wake up one morning and you'll be in business. That's about as specific as I can get. But if you're 23 or 24 and you've never been in the music business, forget it. Right? You won't get in. You've got to start young. Okay, start young and keep at it. Yeah. All right. Yeah, pulp. Thirteen years. It took, it took them thirteen years to have a hit. Well, there's you know, just so much. There's so much noise out there. Ian, yeah. Ian Bland mentioned this to me, uh, yeah. a good friend of mine. There's cutting through with all of this cacophony of social media and. But it was no different back in seventy eight, seventy nine. Can you imagine what we felt like we were competing with? You know, we had Led Zeppelin, Elton John, all the big groups like the Who and all those people. Yeah. You know, it was, and then it, it was either that or dance music. Yeah. It was hard to find a sort of a place, you know what I mean? It's hard now, so but people do. That's the amazing thing. The last, the, the cherry on the cake, as it were, uh, is the, the thing that we ask to everyone, uh, which is that you, it, you imagine a scenario where... Uh, where the Earth is is in peril, that uh, aliens have come and they, they they want to for some reason destroy this planet. What what is the tune that you would give them to stay their hand? You know, what is the the tune that you would literally save the world with? I think it's, I think it would be easier to think of, of of what you would give them to make make sure that they were get, that they whacked us. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, if you want to answer that way, put us out of our misery. Put us out of our misery. Yeah, yeah. What would that be? No, I'm not, I'm, that would be too rude. I I thought about this and I chose a strange song, um, "Floating in the Air," Alan Jones, because like I the Snowman one, yeah, the Snowman one, because I thought. There's no way that the aliens are going to understand the lyrics, so there's no point in going for a big lyric. What you want is something that has a beautiful atmosphere and hopefully it'll have some sort of soothing effect. And, you know, it would have to be that or Debussy, you know. From Debussy, if you if you played an alien Debussy, he would know that we had an advanced society mm. from the harmony. Yeah, you'd, you'd, so you'd want to make them feel. But floating, floating in the air... It, it, you know, one would have to believe that it would have a nice effect on someone. I think it could. <laughs> I think it could. Lovely choice. Trailblazers. We're walking in the air. We're floating in the moonlit sky. The people far below are sleeping as we fly. Originals Trailblazers Trevor, thank you so much for your time and good luck with your with this uh, the new record. This new record, yeah. yeah. Should we just quickly um, actually talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, in, in at number eleven, the first record I have ever released under my own name. So that's um, an interesting. I've never even. How does it feel? Odd, but I like I like it because. Uh, my real interest is is getting people to come to shows with the band because I like playing, you know, I like really like playing um, more than anything at the moment. So this will help me and this is kind of why I did it in the first place. 
And it's it's a it's a cool thing to go back and rearrange a bunch of really good songs. I enjoyed that, and it makes you think. You know, a good song you can do it so many different ways. And the song, you know, if if the lyrics good and the song's well written, then it'll always work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Work in any context. Yeah. Sounds like an incredible record from Robbie Williams to Tony Hadley and Seal. Seal is on there, isn't he? Yes, yeah, Seal. Rumor. Uh, Steve Hogarth from Marillion. Yeah, there's a few people. Yeah. The immortal Jimmy Wood. And and on the on the live side, is there any? You know, are you going to be travelling the world? Oh or? yes, I'm 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 off to uh, I'm off to um, Brazil with uh, with Dire Straits. Uh, Legacy, who are all my old friends that used to be in Dire Straits. They right. still they still go and play Dire Straits concerts. Right. And everything. So I play bass. I'm off to Brazil for a while, and then uh, <laughs> we're going to. Uh, I think 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 going to do about ten or twelve shows in the summer. Fantastic. You know, it takes a bit of time to set up because it's like twenty, going to be twenty people on the stage. Yeah. We've got, yeah. All orchestra. But, yeah, but but we do we we did it at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, you know. On November the second, yeah. so we know it works. It, it'll be good. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. Well, enjoy that. We thank you so much for your uh, your time today, okay. and for your tremendous contribution over the years as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Trevor. Thank you for having. Yeah, yeah. Great. Trailblazers. Deezer. Deezer. Originals.